why Jesus answers to Job. Um, And I'm going to be taking the first one, which is titled, Why is Life Not Fair? And this is a a huge subject, or Job is a big book, 42 chapters, a long book. And uh, we're not going to go through every chapter. We're going to just take some questions and think about answers and focus a bit on Jesus as we look at that, because I think that's how we do it and how we need to do it. But I've got the duty, which I, I, I see as a pleasant duty, but also a fairly weighty one of trying to introduce the subject this morning and look at this fundamental question which many people ask, why is life not fair? So I'm going to pray and that gives the last few a chance to come back and then we're going to get straight into it. We'll be looking at Job chapter 1 and a bit of chapter 2. We may go on for 40 minutes at least. If you're a visitor, don't be frightened. I hope God will take us Uh, into some things that you will find interesting because these are huge questions that everybody asks and they're often the most you know one of the most challenging things people think they can challenge God and Christians with is why do good people suffer or why is there so much pointless suffering in the world Job takes all that on the subject full on face on head on in the book of Job so let's pray Lord I pray for your help this morning I ask you Lord for wisdom and care in dealing with this sensitive subject. But Lord, I thank you for your word, which is a light to our path and is uh, food for our soul. And I pray, Lord, you'd feed us this morning. I pray you'd illuminate our path and speak to us from your word. Speak, Lord, we're listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Right, Job. Now, Job is an important part of what we call the wisdom literature in the Bible. Uh, There are probably three or four books that might be classically seen as wisdom literature. The main ones are Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and Job. You might add Song of Solomon's as well. But particularly Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and Job are written in a totally different way to most of the rest of the Bible, except for a few Psalms. They're written in a particular poetic Hebrew, a very clear style, literary form, that is different from all the rest of the Bible. As I say, quite poetic, really. And they deliberately look at life in general, the world in general, how it works, what happens, how things operate under the sovereignty of God and under his creative care. Now, the Hebrews saw wisdom not as head knowledge. They would not have been impressed with a lot of the ways we see wisdom. You put someone on the television they're a professor of economics or they've you know, got a degree in psychology and so they're an expert on something. And the Hebrews would want to say, well, what's his life like? If he's, if he's doing okay with his personal finances and he's an expert in economics, I'll listen to him. If his personal finances are a wreck, I don't want to hear from him. In other words, it's got to be holistic. It's got to be worked out in life. You can't be an expert in something just in your head. You have to live it. You experience wisdom. You, sorry, you gain wisdom through experience, through living life. You learn through battling through things and God speaking to you and applying his truth. That's how Hebrew wisdom was understood. And I would argue that is a much more holistic and true view of wisdom. You could spend a bit more time on this, but our view is a distorted, it's a bit Greek in a way, all in the head, and, and that's fine. And as long as you're an expert, we'll listen to you. That's not how the Bible sees it. So people will learn through experience. And Job is a classic example of that. The whole book tussles with this question that we've got. Why is life not fair? Or particularly, if you like, why do good people suffer? Why are there, is there so much apparently pointless suffering in the world? It's as precise as that. Job doesn't see why he's going through what is. What on earth is this about? His various comforters will suggest uh, various explanations, none of which are fully satisfactory or even right. And it is a question that people ask a lot today. You get a lot of it. You get, how can God be all-powerful and all-good and just, and yet there is so much evil and suffering about? People think that is a complete sort of paradox. These questions trouble everyone, And often atheistic or agnostic people see them as sort of killer questions for Christians. But actually, they trouble people of faith perhaps more than people who've got no faith and don't believe in God. I always think it's rather curious. I mean, if you are an atheist and you believe in chance, what on earth are you doing? Belly aching about it. It's all chance. 
It's random. It's bad luck, good luck. No issue. Forget it. Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow you'll die. Don't look for a reason. Don't argue about it. Just get on. Get the best out of life until you snuff it. I always think atheists are pretty mixed up, to be honest. They get so uptight about, well, why is the suffering? And why does the good be that? Well, your philosophy doesn't... You just go off and go with your random chance-driven world. But actually, of course, most of us know it, it's not quite how it feels. It feels it should be better than this. It feels like unfair. Well, where's fairness come into it if you believe in a chance-driven, meaningless universe? But if you don't, there is a question. Why is it? So actually, people of faith are often more troubled. And Job is a man of faith. And in his battle with what happens to him, he himself asks, can I trust God? Is God truly God, good and just? Those sort of questions. It's in poetic language, but they're the questions that come up in Job's own mind. And there is another question tussled with in the book of Job, and it is this, the nature of faith and godliness. Is it possible to worship God with integrity? Or do you just worship him for what you get out of him? Do you only really follow him if he's doing you good and blessing you? And do you tie everything to how you feel at the time? Do I feel good? Do I feel God's been good to me? Therefore, I love him and follow him. That is another question woven in in the book of Job. And we'll see that even this morning. The godly person struggles with these things, as I say, as much as anybody else. And actually, Job goes through extremes which are not unfamiliar to any of us who have a real faith and battle with difficulties in our lives or in the lives of those near and dear to us. Sometimes, at the worst times, God seems furthest away. That's what Job felt at times. That sometimes it's when he needs him most, he thinks, where is God? But in another way, and it's perhaps a slightly different time in the same scenario, you can feel God's too close. He's like watching me. He's like, he's testing me. He's like against me almost. He's almost like my enemy. These are the real things that Job feels. And we'll come across some of them as we look through the book. The whole book is really around this character of Job, a good, godly man who suffers some appalling tragedies in his life and comes out with elemental cries, cries of pain, of loneliness, of confusion, cries for justice, cries for hope, cries for vindication, cries for redemption. They all come from the lips of this good man, this man of faith, Job. And by the end of the book, we do have some answers and we'll see some of them as we go through. But for a fuller answer, for a more complete answer to the issues raised, you need the New Testament. In fact, you need to look at another man, Jesus. If you're going to really come through Job effectively, you need to look at another man, Jesus. And as you look at him, you get deeper answers to the questions that Job raises. And that's why we're entitling this Jesus Answers to Job, because we are living post Jesus. We're living in AD, not BC. We're living after Jesus has come and died and risen. And that's right and appropriate. We're living in the New Testament. This isn't to belittle Job because of the timelessness about the issues. But we need to also have a complete and clear idea of what we have to deal with these things today. Now, I would like to read a fair chunk of what's called the prologue, which is most of chapter, all of chapter one, a little bit of chapter two. So I'm going to ask you, if you've got it, to look at it with me. If not, you can listen, because this is setting the whole scene for what comes in the book of Job. So we're going to read chapter one and down through a few verses of chapter two. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, And he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. And he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. 
Early in the morning he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flock and herds spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the, your, the servants to the sword and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties, swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put your servants to the sword and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they're all dead. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. He fell to the ground and worshipped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without reason, without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones. He will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then he took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. It's a powerful story, the prologue. And the whole book is presented as a drama. Think Shakespeare play more than most of the Bible, the rest of the Bible. It's like a Shakespeare play. It's in powerful poetry, and the whole thing is very dramatically written. But that does not mean that it is not about real people and real tragedies. Those of you who know Shakespeare, I know he writes plays about Henry V or Richard II, Richard III. And so it's quite possible to write in a style that's poetic and dramatic and yet be writing about real facts. And Job is possibly the oldest book in the Bible. And it goes back a long way. What we've just read in modern English was possibly first written nearly 4,000 years ago, which is interesting in itself. And by the way, does show that this insistence on asking the question, how can God be good and powerful and allow suffering, is not a modern question. It's not a killer question that's been thought up in the last 20 years by modern atheists. It's something that has troubled man since the beginning of time. It's an ancient cry of the human heart. The Bible recognizes it and tackles it. Just on Job himself, Ezekiel refers to him, that's an Old Testament writer, 
James refers to him, a New Testament writer, and both, when they write about him, assume he is a real person and put him in the same category as Noah and Daniel and people like that. The Bible clearly assumes, and expects you to assume, that the facts of this story are essentially real, even though it's written in a rather dramatic, poetic way. You don't have to believe that Job and his friends spoke to each other in exalted poetry in order to believe that the story is based on a real experience. The writer is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he has insights that and certainly for most of his life, Job didn't have. Insights about the spiritual battle almost in the heavenlies that we'll talk about later, the heavenly council. But actually it's possible Job had later in life some revelation about that. The writer has that. But he also is very precise about where this is set. It's set in the land of us, which for us can sound quite amusing, like the Wizard of Oz or something. You think, where's us? But as I looked it up, which I did in preparing this, I found it quite powerful, and you'll see why. The main weight of evidence is that Uz is near Damascus in modern Syria. The Uz is somewhere roughly in what we consider Syria. In fact, near Damascus, there is an ancient monastery devoted to Job because for centuries, indeed millennia, It's been known by people of faith, both the Jews and the Christians, that that's roughly the area where Job lived, which is very poignant when you think of what's going on in Syria right now and the suffering and the cataclysmic stuff. It's very powerful. The Chaldeans were organized army. They're mentioned. They'd be like your Russians and your Assad forces. The Sabians were wild and cruel sort of bandits, a bit like ISIL perhaps. And they all came sweeping in on Job and his family. On top of that, there were natural disasters such as the storm and the thunderstorms that are mentioned here. And it's actually quite a powerful fact for us to realize that we look at Syria today and we might ask these very same questions. Well, that's roughly the area where us was and that's where Job lived. Now, it's got a timeless quality, and we're going to focus in this second part of what I want to say on what are the answers, or what does it say to us? Why do the righteous suffer? And as I start into what is broadly the second part of what I want to say, I want to say something, because I want to be sensitive with this and careful. I've been a Christian leader, a leader in a church for many years, for nearly uh, 40 years, I suppose, overall now. And I've obviously had my share of things that I've seen, not only in my own life, but particularly in other people's lives, which have been difficult and tragic. And actually cause you, cause me, to think, what's God doing? Why did God allow that? What's the good in that? Where's the good come out of that? So I understand those questions. And when you begin to talk about the answers, which I'm going to do, that come to why is like, why does this go on, which is what we've got to look at, what are some of the answers to that? I have to start by saying, because any Christian of integrity starts by saying, I cannot pretend to fully know why all these things happen. But we do know some things that God has told us and those things help us to understand it, and they bring some uh, footholds for us in life, some things to stand on and move forward on in faith. And they're what I'm going to look at this morning for a few minutes. I'm just going to touch four of them. They all could do with more time than I can give them. But I want to give you four, if you like, sort of answers, sort of issues that come back with something to understand about this dilemma. The first is, The world is not right. The Bible tells us that the world we live in is not as it was created. It was created good and has become spoilt and twisted, a confusing mixture of very good and very bad and some in between. Now Genesis 1 to 3 shows us the root problem. The evil entered the world because men and women turn their back on God. And the Bible calls that sin. Now, we turned our back on the Creator, 
who had made a good world and decided to, to go our own way, decide our own good and evil and follow a way that was influenced by the devil. Though you cannot blame him for the choices Adam and Eve made. As a result of that independence and turning our back on God, evil, affliction, sickness, death entered a good creation. We live in a sin-sick world, in a fallen creation. And the Bible declares a close connection between human sin, mankind's rebellion against God, and evil and suffering. But the Bible is also very clear that you cannot say a particular tragedy, a particular sickness is linked to particular sin, or not very often. Occasionally it's obvious. Someone is a blind drunk driving a car, drunken driver wrecks the car. And there's an element in which you can see for the driver, there is a sort of their sin brings a fruit. But if they hit a car full of innocent people and kill them as well, that doesn't really satisfy that position. So there is some element of you can see a direct link between sin and tragedy and, sick and, and trouble. But it, the Bible doesn't say that. And although some of Job's comforters are going to say that, it's not the biblical position as we'll see as we go on today or another day. So actually there is a, a, a broad generic link which is very real between sin and rebellion and and all that goes on that's not right in our world, but it's really saying that men and women are like a ruined castle, if I can use an illustration. Not a completely ruined castle, one that has still got lots of grandeur about it. So you can look at a castle, a a, a well-built one from, say, a thousand years ago or more, and you can see the amazing architecture, the beauty of it, and how well it was built, but it's all touched with corruption. It's all affected by the decay of the years and you couldn't live in it now although once a very wealthy famous lord or king lived in it and and it's a bit like that that human life has these amazing royalty elements to it you can see glorious things in people and yet everything seems to be touched with corruption sometimes the most amazing artists and musicians and the most uh, exquisite characters in one area have horrible secrets in another area. It's like they do gross things there but can do wonderful things here. And they're only exaggerated example of what's true of all of us. There's this strange business that everything's touched with the corruption of sin. Sin has polluted everything. It's only a matter of degree in any individual or any society. No one is unpolluted by sin. No one. It's only a matter of degree, and no society is free from it either. And this question, why do the good people suffer, was asked to Jesus, actually, and he gave an answer which is a bit in harmony with what I'm saying. So I'm going to flick up the incident. It's quite short. Luke 13, this was the same question, if you like, being asked in Jesus' time, perhaps 1,500 years after Job. Now, there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices. Just to let you know what that means, these Galileans were worshipping God, Yahweh, the Israel God. They were worshipping God in the temple when Pilate uh, decided to make an example of them because of a rebellion, and he massacred them and mixed their blood with the temple sacrifices. Pretty gross, pretty horrible. You could say, why on earth did God allow that? Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18, Jesus adds his own, those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. That was a natural disaster. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will will perish. Jesus' answer is startling, and it's a bit shocking. And Jesus loves to do that, and he does do it quite often. He provokes a reaction in us. He makes us think. You see, in our pride, in our pride in humanity, we point to human suffering, and we say, what is God going to do about that? And Jesus points back and says, what are you going to do about that to people? We say, how can God be good? Jesus seems to say, how can you be so bad? Underlying Jesus' answer is a questioning of our fundamental assumption 
that human beings are basically good and innocent and we all deserve peace, prosperity and blessing. That assumption is behind all of these questions and Jesus challenges that assumption that human beings are basically good and innocent and we all deserve peace, prosperity and blessing. That is a false assumption and Jesus is making us think that through. It's the assumption that drives us to always shake the fist at God as soon as there's a tragedy. To either blame him or, alternatively, immediately look for a human fault in the individual or in some other circumstances. But Jesus provokes us to consider that we all deserve judgment. And actually, when tragedy strikes, it should cause us not to shake our fist at God, but to run to him for mercy and help. That would be the right response. When we ask, why do bad things happen to good people? Jesus would provoke us to ask, why do so many good things happen to bad people? Why isn't there more trouble in the world? Jesus said, you don't understand how bad it is. You should be amazed at how good it is, given the depth and the seriousness of sin. And I provoke us all to think that because that's what Jesus is provoking. We all in this room enjoy incredible blessings and prosperity and grace and goodness. And it's only by the grace of God. None of us deserve any of it. We should be amazed that there isn't a lot more trouble and a lot more tragedy. It's only the grace of God that there isn't. That's the provocation that Jesus is offering He doesn't see these disasters and these horrible acts as reason for a philosophical discussion about the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God, but he provokes us to use it to drive us to God, to say, oh God, we want to have peace with you. Oh God, help us in this sin-poisoned world. Oh God, repent. I repent of my own grief. I want to be close to you. I want to be firmly on the rock so that if any storms come into my life, I'm on the rock. That is the thing that Jesus is provoking with this startling uh, incident. If you saw a little smile across my face, it's my time problem, but I'm going on. (laughs) I can't help it, but I'll do best I can. The second thing I want us to think about is the devil is real. I want us to understand the state of our world. I want us to understand the devil is real. It's fascinating that in such an ancient book as the book of Job, the role of of this vicious enemy of God's people, the accuser of the brethren, is so clear. Since Jesus came, and since the new covenant and the Holy Spirit's been available, we actually have a lot more understanding of the devil and spiritual warfare. In our New Testament, there's a lot more revelation about that. But even here in Job, there is a spiritual dimension. You see, the relationship between God and men and women, is not an exclusive, closed relationship. There is a third party who intrudes. And he intruded in Genesis. He intruded in the Garden of Eden, the ancient serpent, the devil. And the Bible reveals that he is still active in our world. There are fallen angels called demons. There is a a devil, a Satan, a deceiver, a destroyer. And this creature and these creatures have nothing but hatred towards God and towards men and women who God made in his image. And the Bible shows us that when men and women rebelled against God, as in Genesis 1 to 3, they opened a doorway to greater activity by this enemy. Of course, the Bible is very clear, and Job is, that Satan is not an equal to God. Satan cannot contend with God hand to hand. He cannot match him power to power. This is not Star Wars. This is not two equal and opposite forces. He is bent on frustrating God's enterprise embodied in the creation and centered on the relationship between God and the creatures he made in his image, men and women. And as tempter, Satan seeks to alienate us, men and women, from God. As accuser, he seeks to alienate God from men and women, which is what he's working on here in the book of Job. 
But his all-consuming purpose is to spoil the whole thing, to put an irremovable wedge between God and humanity, to affect alienation so completely that there is no hope of reconciliation. And in this story, Job chapter 1 and 2, Satan attempts with one crafty question to attack God's beloved servant, Job, He's a man of God. He's a man of faith who God loves and is sort of proud of in that sense. He tries to attack Job and show God up as an idiot. You're a naive fool. You think he worships you and loves you. He only does it for what he gets. So he's, he's abusing God even as he also is besmirching the reputation of Job. He sneers and says, does Job fear God for nothing? Does Job fear God for nothing? Of course he fears you and worships you. Look what you've done for him. You take that away, you'll soon see. And that is his key, scornful, contemptuous action, which is aimed both at Job and at God. This so-called righteous man, he sneers, will show very little faith when he loses those things, those material things. It's a very precise attack and a devious one. Because if he can show that that's true, that Job is only following God for what he can get out of him, then it sort of blows the whole God project out of the water. God's desire for relationship with men, for faith uh, response, for, you know, without faith it is impossible to please God. It's a fundamental thing to live and act by faith in God for who he is and not for what he does only, but first and foremost for who he is. If that can be shown to be lacking and flawed and impossible, then he's almost, in terms of Satan, he's put a killer question in there that ruins the whole thing. God will just have to judge these miserable creatures, get rid of them, and won't be able to work with them. And in a way, once he's made this accusation, something has to be done to prove it's not true. It's, it, it, it's sort of a fact. It, it sits there now. And although God could say, nonsense, you're a liar, I'll poof, blow you away to Satan. The accusation, the question, well, perhaps Job does only serve God because he has a really good life and loads of money and very peaceful, lovely big family. So perhaps it is, that question would still hang there. And so the one sovereign God who's in charge, perhaps reluctantly and sadly, allows Satan off the lead, which is the sense here. Satan is on a lead and he's let off the lead. He can have a go at Job. Now, there's several interesting facts about this. Satan appears to have tried to get at Job before, but found a hedge around him. And you can, you can only guess at what this means, but it, it seems like he goes through the earth like a roaring lion looking for whom he can devour. And God protects his people, or Job is a symbol of that. Also, we learn that Satan has no power beyond what is permitted by the sovereign God. He can't do anything beyond God's permission. But he nevertheless is driven by his own self-motivated hatred of God and men. He's real and active and intentional in his actions. It would seem that Satan cannot read minds. He cannot predict the future. Otherwise, he would have known what would happen with Job and that Job would come through. He, it would seem that was very true when you think of the cross, where Satan was clearly involved in the destruction or attempted destruction of God's son, Jesus, and didn't realize that he was getting a killer blow coming back on him. So I don't think he can predict the future or read minds. But he is an agent of destruction and suffering. And what comes out in the early part of Job is that all that happens to Job, though it is permitted by God, is demonically driven. It's not the fire of God that destroys the animals. It was a satanic act. The stirring up of the evil Chaldeans and Sabaeans was demonically inspired. The stormy weather that destroyed the children's house, it has a demonic element behind it. With a permissive, God's let him off the lead. I'm not trying to get God off the hook. But the actual business that's done is demon-driven in this. So there is a demonic element to it. And Satan is a nasty enemy. I get cross when people think that you can show sympathy for the devil, like the Rolling Stones song, you know, sympathy for the devil. Don't ever show sympathy for him. He hates you. He hates humanity. He is a liar, a thief, and a destroyer. He shows no mercy on Job. He continues to mock Job, even when the man's lost everything but his health. He still casts 
uh, questions about Job's integrity. He is malicious and malignant. You should never show sympathy for the devil, never flirt with him, and never even think that it would be a great idea to be in hell with the devil. It would be literally hell. He is an embodiment of evil, and you can see it as you come across it in the Bible. God's clear that Satan incited him. Now, that seems to suggest stirred up, provoked with his question. And there's a hint there that it's a course of action that God would not normally have wanted to take against Job. But he he was provoked into it by the killer question, if you like, of Satan. And God is very clear, if we quickly put it up in Job 2.3, that there is no reason for Job to be suffering as he did. Look at the end of this verse. He still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. That is very clear. Job is not suffering for something he's done wrong, which some interpreters try and make clear in different ways from here. I think it's pretty clear. God's own statement is this guy has not provoked this by his bad action. God clearly permitted it, and ultimately, the whole story is about Job and God. And in the rest of the book, Job rightly looks to God for deliverance and vindication. Satan doesn't come into it. And in the epilogue at the end, it's God who feels obliged to resolve the conflict with Job and reconnect with Job and restore the relationship and bless him. Satan is not mentioned in the epilogue. Ultimately, it is all about God and his relationship with Job, just as it is for us. Satan has his part, we have to deal with it. But ultimately, it is about God and us. That's what we know. And in the New Testament, we have a lot more understanding of these things. Jesus gives us a different perspective, a new perspective. He came and died for us on the cross. Jesus took our iniquities and sins and rebellions and griefs and sorrows and bore them in his own body on the cross. If we use an analogy, he paid our debt. We were like debtors who had a huge uh, debt we could never pay off and were as a result in prison. And the jailer of the prison might be like the Satan. He's got a legal right to abuse us and kick us around because of our own stupidity. But Jesus pays off the whole debt and we are there for free to come out of the jail. And the jailer actually hasn't got any legal rights on us. But he's a nasty, vicious, lying, destructive jailer. And you have to know he hasn't got any rights, and you have to deal with him, or he will pretend to be your jailer still. Those are some of the New Testament perspectives we understand about the devil. We also understand that he sometimes is allowed to be an agent of testing. Let's quickly look at a couple of verses. Luke 22. Thank you. Verses 31 to 32. Here we have Satan in the New Testament with the disciples. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked, he had to ask, to sift you all as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. It's a bit scary, maybe, but it's true that he still sometimes is given permission to be an agent of testing. They all came through the testing, but it wasn't pleasant. And they had their lives sifted. And the rubbish came to the surface. Peter's going to be one of the first when he uh, sort of denies knowing Jesus and curses and swears out of his fear and confusion. And all the junk comes to the surface. But he comes through it. And at the end of John's Gospel, John 21, you find him re-established in his love relationship. Cleaner and stronger, actually, as a result. So there is a mysterious element in which God's permissive will sometimes still allows this. Now, my last point, I'm going to have to ask you to bear with me to say it, because I need to say it. I'm not even going to get to point four. It's so important, I've got to touch it. The third point, I'm not going to deal with the fourth, I haven't time. God himself suffers. This is such an important subject. And this is something we only understand from the New Testament. It's perhaps the greatest mystery of all. We've seen it's a sin-sick world. We've seen there's a third party involved in this whole business, the whole mess of sickness and sin and suffering. Satan has his fingers right in it. But here, as we look at the answer, which we've already touched on, we learn something very profound. 
The Christian faith is all about Jesus and his death on the cross. That's why Christians have the crucifix, the cross, why it's so central to our faith. Actually, Christianity at its core profoundly engages with the issue of evil and suffering. We don't avoid it, we go right into it because it's all about the suffering of Jesus on the cross. Jesus was God become man. He was God become man, like a second Adam, without the pollution of sin, but in all other respects, he was a real human being. And he shared our sufferings. At birth, he knew poverty, prejudice, rejection. Within a few months or a year of his birth, his parents are refugees from the horrible King Herod who is going to kill all the little boys under two. And they flee to Egypt. He experienced temptations, loneliness, anger, grief, tiredness, hunger, betrayal, misunderstanding. He got the whole deal like we experienced. And then at 33, that particular betrayal by his close friend Judas, he ends up falsely accused, kangaroo court, abused physically and other ways, and nailed to a cross, one of the most painful, shameful deaths invented. And in that injustice and pain, he experiences even this, the abandonment of God his Father. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out the Job cry, the cry of why. Why have you forsaken me? He's bearing our sin. He's covered in our blackness. And even his father has to turn his face away as Jesus bears our judgment and our pain. And he was the only one who could do it to break the chain of this horrible link of sin and rebellion and suffering and evil and death and judgment. And it's just one chain. And someone's got to break it. Jesus breaks it. By dying on the cross for us. He bears our griefs. He bears our sorrows. He bears the wrath of God against our sin. And he rolls it back. Now you can argue and philosophize about why that's necessary to come and why did it happen. But the reason why it happened was because God loved us. Just put up John 3.16. God so loved the world, it says, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Why did it happen? I can't fully understand. But I tell you what, it wasn't avoidable. And God's motive for the cross was his love for us. So when we ask, why does God allow suffering? We look at the cross. And although we don't get a full answer as to why it is, we certainly know what it is not. The answer to the question is not that God does not love men and women and doesn't care about them. The answer to the question, why does God allow suffering, is not that God is indifferent, detached, and couldn't care less. The answer is not that the link between sickness and suffering and death and sin was so superficial that God could just brush it aside like dust off a shelf or shake it off like a bit of dirt on your arm. It was much deeper ingrained. Suffering and evil and sin are so woven together. The fabric is so tightly woven that only God himself could save us and he himself had to suffer to deliver us. So Jesus bore our sufferings. So suffering is so woven in. If God wants to save us, and keep us without destroying us, and yet get rid of our sin and our rebellion, and deal with the consequences of it, and turn the whole thing back, he has to suffer. So there's no easy answer. God didn't have an easy answer. There isn't one. It's a deeper thing than that. And so my final point, which I'm briefly able to say, this life is not all there is, because Jesus rose from the dead. And that makes a difference. Once he'd gone through the cross, he rose from the dead. That tells us he had finished the whole job. The debt was paid. We have total redemption, total forgiveness if we put faith in him. It tells us that God had done it. He'd reconciled. He'd squared the circle. He'd completed something that looked impossible and had turned back the disasters that sin and Satan and death had brought into the world. It gives us hope for the future. There is life beyond the grave. There is a new order coming, a new heavens and a new earth where sin and sorrow and sickness will be banished. Christians have a profound belief 
that ultimately good will triumph over evil. Ultimately, it must do and it will. It happens on a shorter term as well, but it happens on the long term with the new heavens and the new earth. And what we'll see from that perspective in the future is reflected in the song of heaven in Revelation. As people look back over history, they say of God, great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are all your ways. In a mysterious way, we will see how the circle is squared. We will see not that it it wasn't fair, but we'll see it was just. Nobody's saying in heaven, that's not fair. They get it. We will get it. And a foretaste of that can even happen now. It's not only in heaven. The cross has its benefits right now. You can know eternal life now. This last verse, Romans 6.23, says this. If you could skip on one more. That's it. Thank you. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Sin has somehow brought a payday with it of death and suffering. It's a deep, mysterious, dark pit. But there's an answer to it. It's in Jesus. Jesus died and rose again. And in Christ Jesus our Lord, we can receive the gift of eternal life. You don't earn it. You can't say, well, it's because I've been a good boy as opposed to a bad boy. No, no, it's not like that. There's a gift by God's grace. And it begins to roll back. It doesn't just wait to the age to come. We can see victory over sin. We can see freedom from satanic bondages. We can be delivered from demons. We can see miracles and healings turning back some of the effect. We can see breakthroughs in life, amazing provisions. We haven't yet got it all, but we get a foretaste of it. It begins to roll back now through the work of the cross and in the name of Jesus. In Christ Jesus our Lord, we begin to taste life, a new life. And Job is way back. And yet, in principle, he understood that even when bad things happen to him, it mustn't drive him from God, it must drive him to God. And we understand far more than he did. We've just heard a brief sketch of it, but we understand about Jesus and the cross and the new covenant. But the principle Job knew, we must say, if we are people of faith, trouble drives us to God, not from God. Even when we don't understand it, even when we don't see the reason for it, it looks pretty pointless. We don't find an answer outside of God. We know where the answer must lie. Amen? Let's stand together. Now, I'm aware, I knew I was covering masses this morning. I felt I had to because it's an introduction, it's a huge subject. So I'm actually not even going to have song. We're just going to pause for a minute. And I just want the Holy Spirit, I'm going to ask him to, to just speak to you what you need to get this morning and retain. There may be some of you here this morning who have never known Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You can receive the gift of eternal life this morning by just saying, Jesus, come into my life. Make me part of your family begin to roll back the darkness in my life. I'm going to encourage you to do that when we go quiet in a minute. We're going to go quiet for a minute or two before we go on. For the rest of us, that may be the majority, who feel we, and probably do, uh, know Jesus our Lord and we're, we're clear about our personal faith, I want God to just meet you this morning and rekindle in you a deep gratitude and a deep love for the Lord which is nothing to do with your circumstances. Whether you've had a good week or a bad week, we often put that in, and it's okay, but it's irrelevant. God loves you whether you've had a good week or a bad week. Whatever's going on in your life, and I know some of you have got some big stuff, you are not outside the love of God. And he who is with you is greater than he, in you rather, is greater than he who is against you. The devil may seem to be winning in your personal little battlefield, but God is greater than the devil. He is only a creature. God is the creator. And in Christ Jesus, we are children of God. And Jesus has given us his name, his authority, 
and we can deal with demonic attacks in that. We can pray to our Father and come to the throne of grace and expect help in a time of need. I'm going to encourage you with fresh faith, just it quietly, to ask God to bless you and help you and deliver you right now. So let's have a quiet moment and then I'll pray. Holy Spirit, I just ask you to speak to us this morning. Out of all we've looked at, Come, Spirit of God, just minister to each individual in front of me. Lord, I thank you that we are not alone in the muddle and the battle of life in this world. I thank you, Lord, that when bad things happen, and confusing things happen, we are not alone. Lord, we stand on the rock of Jesus. When a storm comes, we are going to build and have built on the rock. Lord, we ask you to strengthen our faith this morning, that we might be men and women who never let go of you when the storm's blowing, who dig deeper, who hide closer, who snuggle in tighter to you, when the wind is colder and stronger. We ask you, Lord, to forgive us for being so quick to blame you and so quick to put an accusing finger up when something doesn't work as we want it to. We ask you, Lord, to fill us with a fresh faith this morning and a fresh joy in believing and a fresh gratitude, Lord Jesus, for you and all you've done. We thank you that we don't just have to wait for the age to come. You've given us foretastes of that age now. We have you with us. We have your spirit. We have the sword of the spirit, the word of God. We have, Lord, the name of Jesus, the name you gave us to pray in. You've given us an open, bold access to your Father's throne. And we pray, Lord, that we will make use of these things in the cut and thrust of daily life. We ask you to strengthen every one of us right now that we might be bold warriors right through to the end of our lives. And we ask it for your glory and in the name of Jesus. Amen.